0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on P.A. Books, Kenneth
0: Cobus, the author of City of Steel. Kenneth Cobus, author of City of Steel, How Pittsburgh Became the World's Steel-Making Capital During the Carnegie Era. Why did you write the book?
1: Well, because I thought it was important. I'm a Pittsburgher, you know, born and bred and uh, worked in the steel industry all my life. And I'm a third-generation steel worker. Uh, um, My uh, father's father, my father, and myself all worked for the same company, Jones & Laughlin Steel. Uh, My grandfather starting in 1906. And my mother's father also worked in the steel industry starting for Carnegie Steel in uh, 1906 also at Duquesne Works. So the whole family is involved in steel. I'm, I grew up on the south side, uh, south side if uh, you talk Pittsburgh Pittsburghese, and uh, so the mill was always close. I could always hear it, uh, smell it, uh, I knew about it uh, besides my father, uh, uncles and things, uh, other people worked that I, in the mill that I knew, so the mill was always there for me. Uh, just typical to gravitate towards that. and. Uh, I always found it fascinating, fascinating, and um, I still find it fascinating to today. And I would always recommend that anybody that wanted to go into the mill to see it, steel meat being made, although it's much covered and you really don't get to see much anymore for pollution reasons, uh, it's just a fascinating process.
0: For someone who's never been in a steel mill, can you describe what it's like to walk in the door and what you see, what it sounds like?
1: Well. I could tell you that I always wanted to go on the tour, the the, Jones and Lachlan offered tours of the plant every year and I was always too young for it. And uh, my, so every time I got to be old enough they changed the age and then finally when I was old enough and they couldn't change the age they stopped doing it because it became too expensive and uh, the problems with setting, setting something up for the public was difficult. So I got my father to get me on, on a tour when I was 16, and he uh, got me a tour in the open hearth, and that's where he worked. He was the first helper. He made steel on a furnace. He was a man in charge of st- making steel in one furnace. And uh, when uh, we got there, all this machinery was moving around, big, huge machines. Uh, they are moving ladles of iron, 40 tons, and the cranes are. Uh, the the, the furnace is making steel with uh, 350 tons at a time. And so all, all this huge equipment's moving around, and my father just walked straight through the plant like nothing was going on. I was afraid. It was dirty, it was dusty. Uh, I was afraid to move off of where my father was walk, walking, and at the same time, I was afraid I was going to get hit by machinery, and he never flinched. And uh, it being in an open hearth is just, it's its almost impossible to describe. When you open the door of a furnace and you're faced uh, furnace, it, it's, it does things to your body. It's you know, the, Your skin feels like it's stretching. It feels like somebody's slapping you in the face constantly from the heat. Um, if you're close enough, just a few feet away, your clothes will start to burn. I mean, that's how much heat is radiated from the furnace. And, it's like a volcano in there when they have heat, and especially on something called the—they called it on boil. Uh, These—it looks like an Edgerton photo. I don't know if you're familiar with Edgerton. He was a high-speed photographer and scientist, and he has these weird photographs of balls of milk dropping and it looks like crowns. Well, it sort of looks like that inside the furnace, but only it's steel, and um, it's boiling and roiling and. It's just so hot and so dusty, and uh, I have appreciation for men that work like that because they get they get so sweaty so fast that sometimes the the sweat runs into their shoes and they're walking around squishing. They're they're you could pour water out of you could pour sweat out of your shoes after doing a bunch of hard work.
0: After you visited the steel mill at age 16 and saw that, what made you then want to go work there?
1: First off, I, I didn't have an education, so I mean, it was. I, I got into the mill when I was 18 years old. I started as a laborer. My father didn't even know I applied for a job. Uh, I got accepted. And so I, I just started working in the mill, in, in the easier part of the mill, in the strip mill. But eventually I transferred up into the Coke plant, which is probably one of the dirtiest plants, places to work, hard work. Um, I got, got married when I was young and I was, had a family and so I had to support a family. So soon though I became a supervisor and then eventually I started to go uh, to school at University of Pittsburgh at night which was difficult and um, I got a degree in mechanical engineering. So I was in, working in supervisory ranks probably around from 1972 on. I started in 1966 and I just find the challenge fascinating. I, I like to solve problems. Um, I like to be faced with problems and uh, you know, you get it's quite a gratification from uh, doing that and some people are uh, compelled by money and other people uh, have other things that, that, you know, are rewards to them, and I sort of set myself up for that kind of thing. I, I like money, don't, don't get me wrong. But, so, but figuring out how things uh, worked, I think, has helped me to do that book because I can see the connections. And I had a boss, um, I don't know if I should, Jim Saunders is his name, and I mentioned him in the acknowledgments. He taught me a lot about, when I was a very young man, about how the mill works and inner plant workings and why you have to do things in a certain way and what the outcomes were and uh, it just made it interesting. And I I built on that during my life, uh, working different jobs to see that, see these connections. And again, I think these connections uh, uh, helped me to write the book because uh, I also like to read a lot about uh, the, the steel industry and the history of the steel industry. There are many good books out there, and uh, I also started to read some very obtuse stuff too, and uh, it, it started to become very obvious why Pittsburgh. I always wondered why, why, why was it Pittsburgh? Why, why not someplace else? And really, I believe that Pittsburgh should not have become the steel center of the world. It should have been a good steelmaking center, but not uh, not the most important steelmaking center of the world. And so I wondered about that. It was curious. There was nothing written about it. And um, using my knowledge, you know, from, from working in the mill and understanding and all the history that I was reading, I could start to see connections that, made it sure and I so I tried to research that more and more and it became more and more apparent. I, I knew this I knew the answer to the question twenty years ago. I was just still working fifty hours a week um, and didn't have time to sit down and write besides I don't like to write and uh, uh, yeah I came across it and it just was a hard thing to do. I would started writing the book three or four times and stopped and is this your first book? Well, no. Yes and no. I do some. I've done some three books on the Pennsylvania Railroad in Pittsburgh. They're mostly pictorial things. I like to use pictures to describe what I'm trying to put across, and then use the captions to, to help enhance the understanding. And so uh, they were put out by the Pennsylvania Railroad Technical Historical Society. So they're they were they're fairly popular and. Uh, I did another book where I was considered the editor, it was written in 1922, and it was written about a place called Buton, Pennsylvania, which a friend of mine, it uh, was a steel mill in Buton, which there is no Buton. if you look at maps, I, I scoured the maps, I said, there is no place like that, and I had a friend that was uh, in the Railroad Society that was a steel worker uh, for British Steel, and I shared it, the book with him, and he said, you know, where is this place? And I said, well, I think I know, but I'm not sure. But he said, you need to find out where this is. And so I read the book about it a half a dozen times and pulled all the clues out and, and decided it was uh, the Aliquippa works of Jones and Lachlan Steel. And in fact, and researching the author, uh, Charles Walker, um, I got a little bio from him and it said after the war, it was very unusual because this man graduated from Yale and then he went to, uh, he volunteered for service in World War I, but World War I was over. By the time he got over, he came back and he was interested in the steel industry, and so he got a job in Pittsburgh. That's where you got steel, is Pittsburgh. He had some friends. He got a job at the Aliquippa Works and worked as a laborer. Now, this is a Yale graduate working as a laborer, kept it secret, and kept notes, and so, protect his friends who gave him the job because he was writing about something controversial. He, he was aiming towards, they had something called the long turn. Every, you worked six days a week, and um, so every other week in 12 hours a day, you had to switch from the day turn to night turn, so you had to work 24 hours straight. And that was every other week you had to work this 24-hour shift, and, and a lot of people were against it. And they were trying to eliminate it, and he was against it but by the time he published the book it was already gone. But it was an interesting book nonetheless because he talked about mundane things of jobs in the mill that he worked. Very difficult conditions and uh, so it was very exciting to be able to identify uh, that and the Iron and Steel Society originally published it and now it's the Association of Iron and Steel Technology. So I've had experience doing that kind of thing.
0: Did your grandfather ever talk about being a steel worker? Do you remember any of
1: that? Um, th- no, they didn't very much. Um, for one, they both uh, retired in 53, and I was only five years old. And um, they're both immigrants. My uh, my father's father spoke mostly Polish, and it, uh, well he, had, he had a hard time with English. so. We, he didn't talk about the mill, but, and, and my mother's father, he died when I was, like, by the time I was ten, so I really wasn't capable of understanding very much about it then.
0: Did your father talk about working in the mill?
1: Yes, um, we talked about it a lot. Um, it, it was sort of, uh, it was sort of this way, when I, uh, if me and my brothers, I have two brothers, uh, went to his house, they would be talking about sports if I got there late because my father liked the Pirates and he liked uh, hockey, the old Hornets, and he uh, he knew all about sports. I know nothing about sports. I mean, I'm happy that the teams win, but uh, if they don't win, it doesn't, you know, its it's not the end of the world for me. But my brother knew, brothers knew about sports, and so when we got, would get together, it would start about sports, and gradually it would swing to the mill. And uh, eventually it was all a mill, and my brothers were totally cut out from talking. So they were not steel workers? No, they they wanted nothing to do with steel. Did your dad like being a steel worker? I tell you no, but the fact of the matter is he 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 loved it. He. Was hard work. Um, he appreciated it. He was a hard worker. Um, it, even at the end of his life, uh, I've told the story many, many times that uh, he was—he uh, had got throat cancer, and so they took his voice box out. He couldn't talk. Um, metastasized. He had brain tumors, and so he was in the hospice, and he'd be. Uh, laying in the bed, and he'd be doing these weird things, I mean, he'd be talking, doing stuff like this, and all the, the doctors uh, w- watched me, w- do, watching him one time, and they said, I wondered what what he was doing, and I said, well, it's very simple, he's making steel, I, I could see him operating a furnace, and uh, sometimes uh, he had so much morphine in him, he would look at me and he'd tell me to go get a certain foreman that, that, that he knew that he made a mistake. He, he didn't remember what he did. Go get him. And, and uh, uh, I tried to uh, alleviate his fears because I tried to think of how much what he was asking and uh, I tried to find the answer to it. And one time I told him don't worry about it. You put 132,000 pounds of iron in there and you're okay. And then he looked up at me and he said, He knew that I didn't work in the open hearth, so he, he knew that my, I, I wasn't there. And I had to say, Well, look, there was a nurse over you. And I said, Do they have nurses in the mill? You know, am I in the open hearth? So funny he realized uh, what was going on. Until, until the day he died, that's really what he did. So, I mean, he was mimicking the, making steel, so that was his primary.
0: You mentioned sure. that you and your father and your grandfather was, uh, worked at the Jones and Lachlan yes. company. Were, did different steel companies have different personalities? Was there kind of a... Oh
1: yes, sure.
0: Well, Can you talk about that? Cause
1: for a while I worked for U.S. Steel. Uh, uh, Jones and Lachlan was more like a family company. You know, it was just, there were two plants until they bought a third one in Cleveland, and, uh, and so it was very kind of family word They wanted it almost seemed like they wanted uh, families of people to be there, and that happened at U.S. Steel also, but, you know, so it seemed like there was a lot of nepotism there, and it was, you know, it's it served a purpose, and at the same time, it was not good as well, but... Uh, I just felt like every, you know, I just knew so many people that knew so many people that also had children and, you know, or grandparents and and fathers that worked there that it was a lot of it worked out uh, that way and I think that that was a goal of the company I think in Aliquippa Jones and Laughlin would take care of things for the town of Aliquippa if they needed things uh, because they had the ability to do so. It's Duquesne Incline I can always recall uh, if they needed uh, uh, a cable uh, on for the incline we made cable <laughs> and frequently when they had to change the cable it was our riggers that was on, were on the incline changing so they had a responsibility to the to the city to the areas that they belonged in and I think that was true of US Steel and National Steel and, well, and Pittsburgh Steel uh, they all had sort of a family responsibility. And I think that did great for the city of Pittsburgh because um, a lot of the things that we have here because of a lot of these industries that made a lot of money and they they put it back into the city. And so we have things that other places only dream of having. Uh, A lot of people think that Carnegie put that Museum up for his name or recognition, whatever, but he still put it there and and we still have it here and it's one of the finest museums in in the world because of this
0: association with this when you worked in the steel mill could could did you know what the end product was that you were making i mean what did the what did the final product look like when you were done with it
1: Well, I made coke and Coke was just used to make iron and I mean just coke looks like a bunch of gray rocks and uh, it was uh, the fuel for the furnace and it was also reductant because when you make iron, iron uh, people get this mis- misconception that all you do is melt things and and it's actually a chemical reaction. Um, the iron ore is iron oxide and and so you have to remove the oxygen to get iron and the way to do that is uh, you use a reductant which is carbon monoxide and it, you fuel when you burn the fuel with a coke. Uh, it releases carbon monoxide and you use that carbon monoxide to combine with oxygen in the ore and it becomes carbon dioxide and then you have free iron and so uh, it's not just melting a bunch of stuff and so iron, liquid iron is just lower temperature, it's shiny when you see it coming out of the furnace you see it's brilliant it's hard to look on iron when it's coming out. Same with steel. So iron, iron is used as in this to make steel. Uh, iron has too much carbon in it. It, all, it gets carbon in it as an alloy in the process of being in contact with coke. And so, when it uh, when you make iron, it has too much carbon and maybe three, four percent carbon. And making steel is uh, has to be lower than. 2%. Typically, I've heard that is as a description, but it's usually
0: lower than that. And with coke, can you talk about how you make coke and how is it that you take coal and by heating it you turn it into something that burns hotter?
1: Well, uh, there are a lot of impurities in coal. If you, Coal looks like a rock, but if you heat coal, and, and you'll see it'll soften and you'll get tars and oils and things off of it. So it has a lot of impurities that lowers the, the heating temperature because you're, you're burning all these other things off. So when you make coke, what you do is you bake the coal in the absence of air. And actually, you're distilling it. It's, uh, so you heat coal in the absence of air. You drive off all these volatile materials, and what's left is carbon. It's almost pure carbon. And so that has a higher burning temperature, and it has a higher strength to it That later strength meant a lot and that is one of the keys of why pittsburgh became uh, the steel center of the world is because in the, we have this uh, pittsburgh seam coal here which was considered probably the most valuable single uh, mineral resource in the united states of america and there were billions of tons of it and uh, There was a very special section of it, and they called it the Connellsville District around Connellsville and Uniontown, where uh, this coal made especially good coke.
0: I want to read you. You wrote, Connellsville coke made from Pittsburgh seam coal in the Connellsville Basin was a benchmark coke and probably the benchmark against which all other cokes in the world were measured.
1: That's right. That's how good it was. And that was discovered right across the river from where we are being... We're doing this interview at Clinton Furnace in Station Square. It's no longer there. It was torn down in the 20s. They started, uh, that was Pittsburgh's first successful blast furnace, 1859, and what they did is they started it up on coal made from the hillside right behind them. Mount Washington used to be called Coal Hill because there were open seams of coal that you could see, and that's one of the things that people that visited pittsburgh in the seventeen and early eighteen hundred said you could see this coal outcroppings right from the city and it's really good coal and you know you don't have to dig a shaft down to, to mine it and everything it's just you just climb up and mine it well they started using pittsburgh seam coal that was mine in a mine right behind them uh... and for clinton furnace and the coal was made uh, the coke was made on the ground they made it in the pit Um it's akin to how they used to make the charcoal. And uh, they started the furnace up and it wasn't really satisfactory. The iron wasn't satisfactory, the production wasn't satisfactory. And so they acquired some coke that was made in Connellsville. And the, they started the furnace back up, they blew it back in and it performed much better. It made more iron, it made good quality iron. And so they realized that they're onto something here, and so they secured a supply of Cornelsville Coke, and that sort of set the 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 bar for what you should do. And other people started using Cornelsville Coke and saw that and realized that this was a much better product, and so they continued to use it. It was made in beehive ovens. They started building beehive ovens, and that's how the beehive coke industry built up in this area. For d- decades, all, the only beehive coke that you could buy in the U.S. was in front on, on the Colonial scene. And uh, so that started this uh, impetus to increased iron production. Uh, furnaces started to increase in number. Jones and Lachlan built some in 1861. But um, in 1872, there were two furnaces built on the Allegheny River, which was really a big industrial valley, not the Mon. Uh, and so they put two furnaces in that now called Lu- Isabella Furnace, and they built one in Lawrenceville called Lucy Furnace. And it was Lucy Furnace was named for Lucy Carnegie, was Tom Carnegie's wife, his brother. And shortly, these furnaces started battling each other for iron production. 50 tons a day was uh, a good production rate. That was uh, the best furnaces in the world were, could make produce 50 tons a day. And these furnaces started out producing 50 tons a day.
0: You say here a Lucy furnace, you have a photograph of Lucy furnace, 1873 and uh, the the first furnace in the world to produce 100 tons of iron That's in exactly. a single day, an unimaginable feat for the time. Right.
1: In England, they, they didn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. And that is part of what happened with this, this story, this movement from uh, of how Pittsburgh became the most important place in the world. A hundred tons a day, an unimaginable feat. Lu- Isabella passed them with a thousand tons in a week. Nobody would believe that they, these furnaces were doing this stuff. I mean, these these furnaces were only a, a couple years old, and here is the the wise people, the wise sages of England, who are the the kings of iron making, they just would not, they refused to believe that this was being done.
0: That was because of Connellsville coke?
1: Connellsville coke. Um, they adopted some, at Lucy at least, they adopted a practice of uh, uh, somebody in Struthers, Ohio. Well, was, the amount of air you blow, it's, it's, it's kind of astounding if you look at the amount of raw materials that, that you use in a furnace in a day. If, if iron ore has 50% iron, so to make a ton of iron, you have to use two ton of iron, and you're going to have to use flux, which is limestone, so you're going to maybe use a, a quarter of a ton or a half a ton, a quarter of a ton of flux or so, and you're going to use a, a ton and a half at that time of uh, coke. But the single highest um, natural resource that you use to make iron in both volume and in tonnage is air. So you would use about four tons of air to do this. And so you had to have big blowing equipment and uh, you had to have good heating equipment for the air. And uh, so what this uh, fellow did in Struthers, Ohio is he started controlling the amount of air used on, based on the revolutions, the turns of the wheel or the, the blow engines that they had. And what that says is that he controlled the flow of air. Up until, at that time, they were controlling air on the pressure in the furnace. So if they had so much pressure to make iron, you, you put in air by pressure. Well, if you think about it, if you have a constant flow of raw material, you should need a constant flow of air. And so conning the revolutions was a revolution. And that's what happened, and, and Carnegie realized that. And they started. They adopted that, and they got away from pressure. He also hired a chemist. Uh, he had to get many different uh, use many different sources for raw materials, particularly iron ore. And since he was one of the late, you know, the late furnaces in the area, a lot of that stuff was the good quality stuff was already committed for.
0: Where did it come from? Where the mm-hmm. Iron ore come from? Well,
1: it, it could come from uh, of Lake Superior. I mean, there's a lot of sources in Pennsylvania. Usually, in charcoal furnaces, the furnace was built where the iron ore was, and then you used the trees to make charcoal and you made it iron ore. With coke furnaces, that sort of changed and you, you brought it to the source of fuel, which the Connellsville fuel was, or the coal was here and was so uh, easier to move the
0: iron ore to bring, bring the, the co- iron ore to the, the, the coke.
1: Yes, because coke is fragile, and uh, so uh, a lot of the stuff was in Pennsylvania, but there was also uh, Michigan and Superior ore, Missouri ore. that you bring it on the, on a the barge or under on the, on the rail or in a boat on the lakes. Um, there was a lot of Pennsylvania ore. I mean. The Cornwall furnaces had huge war reserves in in that area. So, uh, but what he discovered when they hired a chemist, because they had so many different things, is that pe- what people were saying was good stuff was bad, and what what was bad stuff was the best.
0: Right. And in they
1: actually terms r- of war? Th- in terms of war, the uh-huh. quality of it, the amount of iron in it. And so you have to, uh, furnaces are very temperamental, blast furnaces. And so if you put good stuff in, you could throw in, I always told guys that I knew that worked on the blast furnace. you you could tell somebody at the blast furnace to make iron out of dirt, as long as you just kept, always kept, gave them the same dirt. But if you gave them good iron ore, it would be terrible because they have the furnace set up to to work different. They have it set up to work with bad stuff. and uh, Carnegie almost came to ruination at Lucy because they put, they put good ore in that they didn't know was good and it almost ruined the furnace because they were set up for bad ore. And so it, was, it didn't work out. And so by hiring a chemist, he knew what was good and what actually he found out is this really bad ore was really good ore and he secured this stuff at really low prices. And so other people talked to Carnegie, and they they talked about him, and they said, "Well, we don't understand how, how Carnegie could afford could afford the a professor, a chemist." Uh, and Carnegie wondered why they, the other people, couldn't. You know, he understood, he, and he talked about the burning light of chemical knowledge. You know how, so, he was Carnegie used a lot of science. People don't give him credit for it. They always, seem to indicate that. Carnegie made his fortune by cutting men's wages. And if you look about if you look at that stuff, yes, I agree. Carnegie did cut men's wages. He did cut. Uh, other steel companies cut men's wages too. Uh, but if you look at the amount of profits for all the years that the Carnegie company was in business and you look at how much they sold the company for, the the com- that the the amount of money that the, the value of the company, the assets of the company were worth many times, several times, three or four times what the total profits for all the year that the company was in business. And if you try and put wages into that it just doesn't work out. One, the very last year that they said that uh, they had $40 million in profit, if you add up a reasonable wage for all the employees and uh, numbers of employees it was over double the wages of all the employees. So the to the, all the men would have to work for nothing and still not have a bigger impact on the efficiency of the operation. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's different. It's, it gave me a different viewpoint. It gave, gave me a different appreciation.
0: Well, your book says how Pittsburgh became the world's steel-making capital during the Carnegie era. What was it about Andrew Carnegie that, that made it the Carnegie era? He was an innovator.
1: He used good managers. He used scientific principles The iron-making industry just started to be changed at Lucy. Lucy jumped out into the forefront in in 1874.
0: That was one of his?
1: That was his furnace, yes. They moved into the steel-making opera, Bessemer Steel. He decided to build a Bessemer Steel plant at Edgar Thompson, which is still there today. And he started making steel, and again, as soon as they started the business up, they hired Bill Jones, from the Cambry iron works in Johnstown. They were having uh, problems in Johnstown and Jones jumped ship, went to work for Carnegie and he started making about as much as everybody else or more at Edgar Thompson right off the get-go at Edgar Thompson and, and it went up from there. They improved things and so it required iron to make Bessemer steel. You need molten iron and they used to make it in pigs and then remelt it and so they built a second furnace at Lucy because they needed more iron at Edgar Thompson, and they still wasn't enough. So they decided to build furnaces at uh, Edgar Thompson blast furnaces. And they hired a man named Julian Kennedy who had a degree in physics, and he worked furnaces he understood them, and Bill Jones, who was probably the best Steel manager
0: ever. I want to ask you about him because you you mentioned him. He's sprinkled throughout your book, and you refer to him as a legend. W- who a was book he, book and book. why is he a legend?
1: Well, Bill Jones uh, was uh, uh, born in Catasauqua, PA, Central Pennsylvania. His father was a minister. He was sickly. He uh, hired. He they sent him out as a Bill Jones as an appre- apprentice to the Crane Iron Works. But when was that? Um, when he was ten years old
0: uh... Um, around the civil war or... it was or before, the civil war. before the
1: civil war. Okay. Because Bill Jones was known as Captain Bill. He, he uh... he was a very popular man. He fought at Chancellorsville and uh, Fredericksburg. Um... so he was a very respected man, both as a man and as a steel man. And uh... so he knew... Crane Ironworks was a very important ironworks for making uh, uh, anthracite iron. So he learned the iron business and then he moved on to the Cambria Iron Works and started to learn that business and they were in the process of building a Bessemer steel plant there and so he learned the Bessemer plant there from Alexander Hawley was a, uh, the man who designed the plant he designed most of the Bessemer plants in the U.S. and uh, so he learned that from uh, steelmaking from Hawley and from a fellow named George Fritz, who his brother, John, uh, was the guy that made the three-high mill work. And so he understood rolling, he understood steel making now, he understood iron making. Well, Fritz, uh, George Fritz, uh, the guy that owned the the mill, a large part of it, uh, John Morrell, he wanted to cut wages. And George Fritz says, no, that's not the way to do it. I'll give you more production, let's keep the men's wages the same. This is a manager, and so, um, Bill Jones is working for with George Fritz, and he believed in what he said, and so Fritz won out over Morrell, even though Morrell was the owner of the company, and they got the increase and uh, in, in funds that they needed through increased productivity. Well, George Fritz died, and and Jones backed George Fritz. Well. Morell got to make the decision on who gets to replace Fritz. So uh, since Jones backed Fritz, Morell passed Jones over for a different Jones. Carnegie was starting up the mill. He was looking for somebody. So Jones jumped to the Carnegie Steel Company while they were building the plant designed by Alexander Hawley. (laughs) And so he got to start up another steel plant. And he was a very knowledgeable man in all fields. Plus, a lot of people jumped ship from the Cambria Ironworks and came to Pittsburgh to work for Carnegie. Moreau had quoted, made a quote that uh, he didn't like Carnegie because Carnegie was too flighty. Even those years ago, Carnegie, a lot of people identified, uh, you know, those kind of traits with Carnegie. They didn't like him. He wasn't one of the guys, and that's probably a big part of it. You know, he in large part decided to move to New York and... Uh, so he wasn't one of the, the local steel makers. Plus, he didn't know the technological end of it, even though it was his decision to put Bessemer's in because he saw them operating in England and decided that was a good, a good process. So if you go by that, this Edgar Thompson was the 11th plant, Bessemer plant built in the United States. And so using that as a gauge, it really wasn't important. It didn't seem like it was important, yet it started out making as much or more than the rest of those similar kind of plants in the United States. And, in, and eventually in a few years in the world, and eventually no one could pass Edgar Thompson if they didn't want them to. Why I mean, is
0: it called Edgar Thompson?
1: Well, Edgar Thompson was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. A lot of, uh, a lot of historians say that Carnegie was using that as a guise to get rails orders from rails for the from the Pennsylvania Railroad. Flattering the President of the Railroad Yes, yes. But the fact of the matter is, is that Carnegie worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. He worked for he worked for Edgar Thompson. Edgar Thompson, he was in businesses with Edgar Thompson. They were friends. Um, uh, I have a letter, a, a copy of a letter from Uh, Edgar Thompson to Carnegie, when Carnegie asked him to, um, uh, if he could name the plant uh, after him, and and he said, name it uh, as you wish, you know, but I don't have any money to give you, because apparently Carnegie was asking him to join the business, and he couldn't afford to do it, because there was a financial depression at the time.
0: Did uh, the steel companies and the railroads consider themselves partners or, or kind of... No, they kind of
1: be independent. They, In Harrisburg, the plant in Stilton was actually started more or less under the... Uh, Edgar Thompson is the one that sort of started it because the, the railroads needed rails, and the only place you could get steel rails other than crucible steel rails was in England. And so they were starting... Uh, the steel industry, but the Pennsylvania Railroad was having enough trouble of its own of uh, starting their business up. They were, you know, a, a. Uh, I mean, they were well along. They started in 1846, but then this was in the 1860s, but, so they've been in operation for a while, but still the railroads were just learning their ways back then. And although they wanted the product from Steelton, uh, they didn't want to, have the problems of operating a steel plant, which was a technical problem, you know, feat in, in, in and of itself. And so uh, Edgar Thompson promoted that. And so Carnegie was working for the railroad. He was friends with Thompson and Scott. They got into all kind of business deals that were kind of shady and everything like that. And, uh, so he was familiar with them. Uh, so Thompson... But besides that, the answer that Thompson made was in 1872. In 1874, Thompson died. And in 1875 is when the Edgar Thompson works went into business. So if he was using that as a means to get orders for rail, it wouldn't have worked because Thompson was dead. The guy that took his place was Thomas Scott. And Tom Scott is the guy that gave uh, Carnegie the money, the first money, he loaned him the money and showed him how to buy stocks. And so Scott it was, should have been named the Thomas Scott Works if you were going to suck up to the president of the railroad to get rails. But unfortunately, this panic caused the problem. It stopped the construction of the works. Scott came after Carnegie to help him. He was he was heavily leveraged in this thing called the Texas and Pacific Railroad with Jay Gold. He had Carnegie in it. Carnegie paid cash so that he stayed unencumbered, And... But Scott was still, he was so lever- highly leveraged that uh, he, he begged Carnegie to give him money, to, and Carnegie wouldn't give it to him. And so they lost, they had, this was a big break in the friendship, it, it
0: affected both Scott and Carnegie for the rest of their lives. You just say in here the policy of the Carnegie Company was purely industrial, right. industrial. financial considerations had little weight, Carnegie, as Mr. Carnegie remarked, he and his partners knew little about the manufacture of stocks and bonds. They were only conversant in the manufacture of steel. That's
1: not a quote of mine. That was a quote from some, somebody else. Mm.
0: And but you would expect somebody like Andrew Carnegie who would run the business to be a business tycoon. He did. He?
1: he did yeah. sell stocks and bonds all over the world. I mean, that's how he got money to make the steel mm-hmm. company. But when he sort of decided on the steel company, it seemed like he didn't pay attention to anything else. And at the time that, uh, that Gold was in trouble, Pennsylvania had no limited liability company. So if you were associated with somebody and you had a, had a partnership and you had a part of it and, that you, were, you, and you had some portion still not paid, that you were liable and he didn't want to, that's why he paid Scott $250,000 cash because he didn't want to become a liability to the company. And. And so he he did stay unencumbered shortly after this uh, this 1873 panic. In 1874, the state of Pennsylvania did form limited liability permit formation of limited liability companies. And the Carnegie Company at that time, which I believe was Carnegie Mechanus Company, which started the Edgar Thompson Steel Works, changed its name to Edgar Thompson Steel Company Limited. And so they were; beca- they became a limited liability company, so he couldn't be held accountable like that.
0: You also uh, refer to a company that uh, Andrew Carnegie formed, uh, a competing from the Cyclops Iron, Iron company. company. Yes, that's oh, right. uh, not, not too far. We a company named Cyclops. <laughs> uh,
1: well, they had a reason for it, and I just can't think of it. Uh, you know, the the eye of the Cyclops watching over the plant. That, that gets uh, complicated. That goes into Carnegie's background and his associations with people. Andrew Kloman uh, uh, was a, 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 he had a forge in Melville uh, across the river, Allegheny River, from where these other places were. And Kloman, uh, Carnegie considered Kloman a genius. He, he was, uh, he made forged uh, axles for the Pennsylvania Railroad and some other things, wheels. and. Uh, and a friend of Carnegie's, uh, Miller, now I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank on his first name, but uh, uh, they grew up on, uh, Carnegie grew up in Allegheny on the north side, about where Three Rivers Stadium is, Rebecca Street. And so there were a lot of Scotsmen, Scots Irish, you know, people living in that area. And uh, Miller was one of his local friends, and Miller got tied in with Kloman. Um, but he wanted to stay, uh, he, he didn't want it to be public so that, because he worked for the Pittsburgh-Fort Wayne and Chicago Railroad. And so he didn't, he bought stuff from Kloman for the railroad and so he didn't want to pure impropriety, even though it was. And so he had Henry Phipps front for him. And uh, there got to be this argument, Kloman wanted to throw his brother out of the business and they got involved in so, uh, eventually, Miller. Now, I mean, Kloman finds himself a minority owner in his own company, and that didn't appeal to him. So he started attacking Phipps, and and Miller granted him, uh, you know, half so that half interest. And Kloman wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to be the boss, and he started publishing things that Miller had no standing in the company and they called Carnegie in as the arbiter. I, you, that's something that I would never, ever believe, that you would call Carnegie in as an arbiter, and but he was. But he found that ultimately Miller had nothing to do with operating the company. Phipps and Kloman did, and Phipps and Cloman had uh, uh, demanded that, uh, you know, upon reinstatement of this company that Uh, They put in a clause that uh, any of the partners could be thrown out uh, after six months' notice for any reason. And since they couldn't get work with Miller, Miller couldn't work with Phipps. Phipps, uh, Miller was ejected. They made the Cyclops Iron Company, a competing firm. Uh, The design of the plant was bad. Uh, The erection of the part of the plant was bad. What were they going to do? Carnegie said, well, let's talk to Kloman. He's a genius. And uh, Miller didn't want anything to do with uh, Kloman because it was a pretty distasteful thing and they threw him out of the company. But Carnegie went ahead and talked to Kloman and Kloman showed what was needed to be done. It got straightened out. Uh, the Cyclops Iron Company and the Iron City Forge eventually became merged together. Miller got thrown out again because he couldn't work with Phipps. And uh, so that's sort of the beginning of it. Then eventually, Carnegie Tom's came into that beforehand because he said, if you throw somebody out, I, my brother gets to buy some of the
0: interest. Where did you find all these stories? No, well,
1: in the books. There's a book called The Inside History of the Carnegie Steel Company, which tells a lot about that. And that had it came about because a lot of these records became available. Because of the Frick and Carnegie
0: problems in 1899. Oh, can you talk about that, Henry Clay Frick? Because you you refer in your book to um, his, uh, Carnegie's unsuccessful peacemaking and treaty to Frick resulted in Frick's now famous meet you in hell response. Right. What was that right. all about?
1: Well, Frick was probably the finest executive manager in the country, if not the world. I mean, Carnegie was extremely lucky in having Frick as a as a partner. It was extremely lucky. But when Carnegie introduced Frick into the business, he bought a majority share of the Frick Coke Company. And so um, the two men seemed to they hold this place in their heart for uh, each company. Frick for Coke making, I mean, he. He made the Coke business, so he he felt for it, even though he was a minority owner in his own company. And Carnegie for steel. And they made this agreement on what the price of Coke would be to the Carnegie Steel Company. Long term, right, three, four years, something, whatever the price was, I don't remember. Uh, And so they made this agreement, but they shouldn't have. Because Carnegie didn't negotiate for the steel company. There was a company, there was a president of the steel company. Frick shouldn't have negotiated for the Coke Company that was a president of the Coke Company. So neither man should have negotiated this out. But Carnegie came away extremely happy. He went back and told partners, oh, I just negotiated the greatest deal for, you know, Coke. And uh, so what happened is that uh, Frick could give that price of Coke because he was getting rebates from the Pennsylvania Railroad. And the new President of the Pennsylvania Railroad came in and said, "We're not giving anybody rebates. We don't care how big of a customer they are or not." And so he couldn't absorb all of the cost of freight. That was the you know that was the price of coke delivered. He couldn't absorb the price of of freight. He did it for a while and then he started jacking the price up. Well, when Carnegie found out that this happened, he became livid. I mean, he must have said some. The way I get it, and I don't know if this is true, I think Frick threatened to beat Carnegie up. <laughs> I mean, that's the way the things look sound like. Well, Frick, Carnegie left. They had something called the Ironclad Agreement, and if, if you get, uh, you could throw a partner out uh, by the Ironclad Agreement. It wasn't meant to be that originally. But... So if you got a majority of the shareholders and a majority of the shares, you could vote somebody out of the business. Now, the reason why this was started was because Henry Phipps, in case Carnegie died, and Carnegie almost did die in 1886. His brother died, his mother died, and when his mother died, he was near death in Crescent at the same time. And... uh, so the idea was, since Carnegie owned more than 50% of the company, that if he died, the, the company would go out of business because they wouldn't be able to afford to get enough money to, to, to purchase his share of the stock. And so they had the company capitalized at $25 million. Uh, if Carnegie died, they could buy him out over years of time at a certain rate, and, and that was the whole idea behind this. But they, things changed. They thought that they, they could buy out old Uh, young partners that they gave a tiny, tiny share for doing good work, they'd throw them out by the ironclad agreement. And the company was capitalized at $25 million, but it was worth a lot more. So when Carnegie and Frick had this to-do, it had to do with other things. The 1892 Homestead strike, Carnegie lost a lot of stature in the world, and ego was a big thing with Carnegie. Money was important, but ego seemed to me more. And so he he blamed, sort of blamed that on Frick and not himself. Even though he didn't say that, he backed Frick, he blamed Frick. Uh, Frick, he, Frick sort of convinced him, uh, Carnegie, to sell out to uh, the company in 1899 and he provided some of the money to the people, but Carnegie wouldn't sell to these certain people. Uh, uh, this guy bet a million gates and uh, more, and he said he wouldn't sell out to them, but Frick secretly gave them money up front and Carnegie found out about it and he didn't like that. And so this Coke thing came to an issue and they both flipped off and uh, um, they threw Frick out of the company. Well, the capitalized value of the company, I think Frick had 6% shares, capitalized value of the company was $25 million. What they were going to sell to the to the Gates brothers for about $250 million. So, and when they did sell the company to Morgan in 1901, it was for about $480 million. So think of how much money Carnegie was shafting Frick for. I mean, that's, so Frick took Carnegie Company to court. And so, Eventually around, you know, when they were getting old at the end, you know, the end of their lives, Carnegie said maybe we could bury the hatchet. You know, he sent this note over to Frick. Maybe we could forget about old times or do something about it. And that's when Frick sent his, I'll meet you in hell, because that's where we're both going <laughs> response.
0: Uh, you, you talked about the Homestead strike briefly. You just mentioned that. Well, how were labor relations and how were employees treated in the mills at, during this era? Leighton, well,
1: um, see, see, homesteads kind of a special thing. It's um, it's difficult to talk about without getting into a bunch of details that that would take a, a while to explain. But conditions were poor for a lot of men. I mean, uh, there were a lot of people being killed in blast furnace accidents at the top. They'd blow turn- furnace tops off or. Uh, you know, be, men would be gassed. Men would be severely burned. Jones died in a mill accident that way, too. He, a furnace wall blew out, and it blew him off the, the uh, cast house floor into the pit. Uh, there was a guy, Andrew Hanaloy. Uh, most people only describe him as a Hungarian. Uh, the iron started rushing out of the furnace. He was almost, they said that he was almost totally cremated, only maybe his, uh, his head and his upper part of his torso, his arm. And a third guy was killed. So it, mill accidents were fatal. Mill accidents were not unusual. They were very common, and you had to send men into heat where you just it was difficult to stand, and and that is what, part of what a a, a lot of this uh, moving forward with the Carnegie Steel Company came. They eliminated a lot of those jobs. They were too difficult. They mechanized them. They were they were so hard to work. Uh, like when they used to cast pig, uh, they had these men called pig bed men who would have to uh, break the pig up and then tote it and throw it into a railroad car or pile it up so that it could be remelted to using the Bessemer converter. And uh, a, a fellow from Bethlehem, com- Iron, in, uh, uh, said that, uh, about pig bed men. gorilla men are what we need. Just lift tote, a tote pig and nothing else. You didn't need any brains. They just needed, and see with Carnegie, they worked around this. They developed the ways around that. And they, could, they would use science, and they would under, use understanding, and they would use money and put, he'd reinvest money in to do, to put machinery in, to put equipment that would get, get people out of harm's way. Not to get them out of harm's way, I don't believe but to eliminate a bottleneck in the, in, the, in the system to increase productivity. And so if you see this, this overwhelming change, uh, when things were bad, you, you, everything's the same. They had rail poles and things like that where you distribute the, the, uh, the, the amount of uh, uh, sales among different companies according to their position, their pecking order. But there came times when all of a sudden there was a surge of, of order for rails and there were, or there was a surge of order for beams. And Carnegie could produce that at a lower cost than anybody. And so he made tremendous profits on, on these items because he had the ability to out-produce uh, and take a bigger share and then make a higher profit because he was a low-cost producer.
0: We only have about two minutes left. Uh, so w- when it boils down to it, is, was Pittsburgh the world's steel capital because of Andrew Carnegie?
1: Yes, that's, that's my contention. Now, there are other things like Clinton Furnace and things like that, but the way iron was made changed three times in, in Carnegie's tenure, always to the best in the world. The way Bessemer Steel was made, nobody in the world could com- out- out-compete uh, the Edgar Thompson works. Except when he bought the Homestead works, then Bessemer's at Homestead outcompeted competed him. When he built the first basic open-hearth shop, the commercially uh, successful basic open-hearth shop, and that does not mean fundamental open-hearth, it means a chemically basic, not open-hearth steel making was acid, not basic. And so he made basic steel, but he could use scrap. Well, Bessemer shops produced tremendous amounts of scrap. And so, and they couldn't use them. You couldn't use it because there was no f- fuel outside of the fuel in the iron. And so Bessemer plants became these huge, huge scrap yards.
0: You say it was a uh, uh, the Carnegie Steel Company was a leader in recycling as well as economizing the use of fuel and many other materials that would have been otherwise wasted. Carnegie Steel would probably receive awards for these efficiencies today.
1: Yes. So I I did a back calculation to to show this. Just at Edgar Thompson, there was about, in in the span of time that I was, was, to to they made uh, the basic open horse shop, there was about a half a million tons of scrap that was available that wasn't, had no utility, very little utility to use in a Bessemer shop. But you could use it in an open horse shop, but if, if it was contaminated with phosphorus, you couldn't use it at all. And so basic shops, you could use phosphorus you could use phosphorus containing scrap he made it he made useless material into valuable open horse steels were valuable they were they were structural steels rail was selling for 20 or 30 dollars a ton he made he made armor plate the government wanted him and the bethlehem company they were direct competitors they had they shared the market 50-50 you could sell armor plate for up to 850 dollars a ton now, it took a lot more to make it, and it was a lot of, but, you know, it, it was, he made valuable products, so he improved, and he was the biggest in the world. If you look at his outputs, like in 1898, his output, the output of the Carnegie Company, three plants, 56% of the output of the United Kingdom. If you look at the production of open-horse steel, and compare them to Germany, Belgium, France, more production than all three.
0: I'm going to have to stop you there because we are out of time. I want to thank you for your time. We've been with Kenneth Kobus. He is the author of this book, City of Steel, How Pittsburgh Became the World's Steel-Making Capital During the Carnegie Era. Thank you. You're welcome. Happy to do it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. books.